good morning. It's good to see you all. Thanks for gathering here this morning, and uh, thank you for bringing the church into a YMCA gymnasium. Uh, happy summer to you. So I'm really grateful that I get to open up God's Word with you uh, th- this morning. And if we've never met, my name is Jamie, and it's my, just, it's my great privilege to serve here as one of the pastors at Crosspoint. It's my joy to uh, take us along in this journey through the book of Ecclesiastes, what we've been studying over the last few weeks, and through the summer we're going to be continuing our dive into this book, and the kind of subtitle of this series is Making Sense of a Complex World, and so the book of Ecclesiastes, almost like no other, helps paint a picture of just the reality, not just of what people faced thousands of years ago, but of like what you felt this week. Maybe what you even felt like this morning, just trying to to get ready. And even the topic we're going to look at this morning is about the gathering of a a church body. What does it mean to enter into the the presence of God as a worshiping community? And so there's lots of things in this book that help us see like, okay, I'm not crazy. Like these things have been going on for a long time. We feel this angst. We've got questions. We've got concerns. We've got things that are like, this didn't seem to go the way that I thought it would. And yet in the midst of it, There's hope and there's joy and how do all these things reconcile? And the book of Ecclesiastes helps us dive into those things, those topics. I'm really glad that you're here, whether you've been with us through the whole series, this is your first uh, Sunday. I think you'll be able to just pick up right along. There's these different topics that were, there's this one that's called the teacher in this book, all right? Some that we believe is King Solomon himself writing about his experiences in life. And so this morning, we're going to look at the first seven verses of, verses of Ecclesiastes chapter 5. And so here's what I want to encourage you to do, because we want you to have uh, the Word of God in front of you. We think it's helpful. You don't need to hear my opinions or thoughts. Like, it's the Word of God that is living and active. That's where the power is. And so if you brought a Bible, turn there. If you did not, there's some paperbacks, ones on the back tables. You can get up at any point, get one of those, and turn to page 618 is where this passage begins The other option, uh, one of the things that we use as kind of a central hub that Eric made mention of is cpwp.life. If you get your phone out and you go there, swipe over, the very second card says message notes. And so anything that's up on the screen this morning, including the text that we're going to read here in just a moment, is there. There's space to take uh, notes. You can email them to yourself afterwards, that sort of thing. And so that could be a helpful way to follow along. I want to go ahead and read this, and then we'll circle back and kind of make our way through this, looking at these kind of various movements that, that we see. We get some instruction that's given here, but Ecclesiastes chapter 5. And so as I read God's word, if you're able, would you go ahead and stand? And I will read the first seven verses of Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Hear the words that are spoken. It says this, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God, and to draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know what they are doing is evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth, therefore let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. Verse four, when you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? Verse 7, for when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one that you must fear. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So through this great book, 
Here's kind of a quick recap in the first four chapters. One of the things that you would see here is there's been this exploration. This teacher is looking back over his life and is saying, literally, I've tried everything. There's nothing that I lack. I'm not wanting for anything. And so this book has showcased for us like the futility, the vanity, the language there that it uses throughout. Or maybe your translation says meaningless. It's this idea of a vapor or of a mist and you reach out for it and it kind of slips through your fingers. It's like we just can't seem to hold on. And the things that we pursue aren't ultimately satisfying. And so the teacher here has been telling us, listen, I had all the wealth, more wealth than I could possibly imagine. And it was vanity. He's like, I had more relationships, I had, I, had more, um, I had more friends, I had more parties, I had more houses, I had more women. All of these things he lays out and he's like, at the end of the day, it's vanity. I had more wisdom than anybody else. People were from around the world were coming to glean from me and yet it was vanity, it was meaningless, I, it just did not satisfy and so you can kind of picture along the way that here's this, this man that has just been like, what is going to satisfy and now, the particulars of his story, you may not absolutely relate to every last detail, but here's the thing that I think we can all relate to, is there are pursuits, things that we give our time and energy to thinking that'll satisfy. And when it doesn't, here's a common thing I think that can sometimes happen. And it's both beautiful, but also can get us in some trouble, all right? Maybe a way to think about it is this. For the teacher here, and maybe for you here this morning, or this has been part of your life, it's like, okay, I've tried all of that. What else can I do? I know, I'll go to church. That will fix it, that will solve it. That's what's been missing in my life. I've had the women and the wealth and the housing project, all these things that I've given my attention to, but now I need God. I need to go to church, I need to get right with God. Maybe that's what's missing. Now, in that, there's a lot of truth. And yet, what the teacher here is showcasing for us, what God is showcasing for us, is there is a right way and a wrong way to come to church, to, to gather with God's people, to be in the presence of God. And so one of the things we get to ask ourselves this morning is like, hey, what's your approach? What's my approach? Like, literally, what, were there any particular thoughts running through your mind as you even made preparations to be here this morning? All right, so we're having a message about at church about why you're here at church. All right, that's kind of what's happening in this. And the reality is church can be a difficult thing at times. It can bring up past wounds, hurts, pains, all of that. It can also be confusing at times because we come in with maybe really unhealthy expectations about like this will solve it, all right? And maybe you're here this morning kind of last ditch effort, like okay, I'm gonna try this thing and boom, you know, if like if the sky doesn't part and there's not this big oh, kind of moment, then like I'm out, I gotta, this apparently, you know, didn't cut it either. But what would it look like to have a regular pattern of gathering with God's people, this ongoing nourishing, this sustenance that God gives to us over time, to have an approach and a posture is like, I'm not here for me, but I'm here for God. What would it look like to have a right kind of approach and posture in all of this? And to realize that, yes, church is not perfect, all right, there are imperfect people, one of which is on stage right now. Like, the reality of the situation is, though, that God does something beautiful and wonderfully transformative in us as we gather that this time matters. But there is a right 
and wrong approach in how we think about this. And so this book is going to help us sort of orient, like, hey, how should we even think about what's happening even as we've gathered here this morning? And so the very first verse says this. And here, I want to talk to us this morning. I think we'll see sort of like almost five movements of sorts, all right, that there's a wrong way, but we can move towards what is healthy, what God actually has for us. And so the first thing I think that we see right out of the gate here is that there's this call to move from sort of this casual, flippant, like, eh, it it matters, it may not matter, I'll kind of come and go as I please, to seeing it as something that's consecrated, it's set apart, it's holy, that what we're doing right here, like, it matters. It matters to God, it matters to your walk with the Lord, that God wants to work. And so Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 1, just we'll look at the opening few words. It says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Now, in that time, in that place, this would have been a reference like going to the temple, all right? It was a bit more ornate and developed than the YMCA gymnasium, but just try and picture it for a moment, all right? But the idea and the concept is the same, that we have access to God. And though God is not contained in in some sort of limited locale or this particular, you know, we don't believe that this gym is somehow like, well, this is where the presence of God is, the Holy of Holies. It's right behind that black curtain right there. That's, That's not what we're talking about. But there is this reality that we're part of now that we get to gather and be in the presence of the Lord. And so what is happening here does matter. And so the writer, the teacher says, guard your steps. And I noticed this just as kind of an aside, not if you go to the house of the Lord, but when. It's this call again to this consistent sort of faithful presence here. Not in a legalistic way, not if you miss a week, like, you know, you're going to be shunned by this community, but rather there's this idea, there's this understanding like, hey, when you go, like when we gather, this is a regular part of our life. It's a rhythm, it's a habit, it's a liturgy, and it forms us. It's not the only thing, it's not the be all, end all, but it does matter. And so he tells us, as you do this, and when you're engaged in this, guard your steps. Guard your steps. Guard your steps against maybe the expectations that you have, that you think like this, just if I just come one time, it's going to solve everything. Guard your steps and how you approach it, not in a way that you should cower or be fearful, but also recognize that you're stepping into something that is, that is holy and it's set apart and it's sacred. And this is a really fine line for us to walk, because on the one hand, I like that we have, even at this church, like there's a it can be casual. There's a rela- I don't think it's this call to uptightness, all right? Um, I don't know that it's a, I think it's a, like a place where one can preach in a flowered shirt, right? Like that kind of thing, okay? Um, I am all for those things. And yet, even in that, there's this call to see it as something holy and set apart. And so we don't have to be like uptight about it. Yet at the same time, is our posture one of like, I'm getting ready to gather with God, God's people. And this is holy and it is sacred. And I'm going to prioritize it in my life, and I'm going to make sure that this is something that we're regularly engaged in. We're going to guard the time, or we're going to guard our approach. We're not here to earn anything, but we're here because God has done everything for us, and we get an opportunity to worship him. It's consecrated. It's set apart. Philip Ryken, in his commentary on the book of Ecclesiastes, says it this way, Understand that whenever we go to worship, we enter the presence of a holy God who has gathered his holy people to hear his holy word. If we take this for granted, not listening to what God says, then the Bible says that we are guilty of great evil, for we have despised the gospel of the cross in the empty tomb. So realize that 
Worship matters. What we do here, it matters. It brings honor and glory to our God, and he works in and through this. And so what is our approach? So the first movement there is to see it for more than just this kind of casual flip it and take it or leave it thing, but it's consecrated, it's holy. We get to step into this. And the reason this is so important, or one of the reasons this is so important, is because you and I, and this kind of leads to the next thing, is there is this movement we need to see from doing to resting. This entire week, I don't know the particulars, all right? I wasn't there at your workplace or in your neighborhood or in your house, all right? Um, as much as you might have posted on social media, I still don't have a clear sense of all the particulars of your life, but I do know this, because I live and I inhabit the same world that you do, is that you and I were bombarded you and I were assaulted over and over again with sort of a toxic message that the culture continues to push that you are what you do, how you perform, what you produce, and it's never, ever, ever enough. More and more and more. And so when we come into the house of the Lord, when we gather, whether that's a formal church building or a YMCA gymnasium or whatever that happens to look like, that is not the part that matters. It's like we are the people of God. We're the, the church that is gathered. That's why I say thank you for bringing the church into this place because the church is the people of God. When that is happening, one of the things that we need to see, be aware of, and even why it's so important to gather is it's this opportunity to have our hearts reoriented to kind of get this reset to realize, okay, that message I can drag that in here to church and I can even think that me coming here is about doing and performing and earning so that God might be pleased with me. And there's this religious impulse in the heart that says, okay, well, I tried building projects and I tried acquiring money and I tried traveling to this and all these sorts of things. And so now I gotta try this. But that's antithetical to the actual message of the scriptures. The message of the scriptures is this invitation to come and to rest. And so us entering into this is not to earn anything. It's to realize that you've been bombarded with an image, that you are what you produce, what you earn, all of that. And to come in and be reminded of who God is and what he has done to move from doing to actually resting. So the writer, the teacher says this, to draw near to listen, we'll come back to that in a moment, is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. And so as people would show up in that time, in that place, all right, they would oftentimes, there was animals to be sacrificed, all right? Now, I didn't see anybody this morning dragging in an animal to offer here, all right? That's a good thing. But in that time, in that place, it was, that's a thing that was commanded by God. There had to be bloodshed. And so is God now saying, hey, I don't care about any of that? Like, what does it actually mean? How is it that they're doing evil? Like, what's the big problem here? I thought we were supposed to do this. And the great tendency of the human heart is to miss the relationship that God invites us into, to rest in his love, to know that he has rescued us, and then we now live in response to that, that bringing in the sacrifice is in a, is in a way that, okay, God will now smile upon you, that needs to get below just, just sort of the external sort of performance-based things and actually get to the heart of the matter. Not that he doesn't care about the sacrifice, but it's possible to be very ritualistic it's possible to make church very ritualistic in the sense of you coming in like, oh, this is what we're supposed to do so that God will be happy with me. It's like, no, no, no. God is inviting you to rest in him. And so 
the question becomes, like, what are they doing that is so wrong? Let me read you a few passages of Scripture, one out of the Old Testament, a couple out of the, the New, and it kind of gets to the heart of the matter. In Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, it says, I desire, this is God telling you, telling me, telling us, hey, here's what I'm after. I desire steadfast love, this faithfulness, and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. And by knowledge of God, it doesn't mean simply acquiring a bunch of information about God, but the idea there is knowledge, just to know, to be in relationship, to, to enjoy, desire, be in the presence of God. That's our invitation. Like this morning, we're gathered here that this is a holy thing. You're in the presence of God. And God is wanting to do something in your life and in my life as we've gathered here and we have these opportunities to hear the word proclaimed and to sing the the truths about who God is and to worship him and to participate in the sacrament of of communion, all of these things. So he says, but listen, pay attention to the heart of the matter. This is where Jesus, as he confronts the religious kind of impulse in his day that is still very much present, look at the harsh words that he has to say. I'll just read a couple of examples, all right? It's referred to as these woes of Jesus, where he's like, woe to you, and he begins calling out the Pharisees and the religious leaders. In Matthew 23, verse 15, he says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. Those are a conversion, in essence. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. No one there in that moment was like, is he, is he upset? Like, what, what's, what's going on, right? Like, what does he mean by that? Is that a good thing? Is that No, it's very clear in that moment. Like, you're getting, he's like, you are trying to convert people to your religious behavior modification where it's just about the external. You've missed the heart. You don't have a true knowledge of me. And when somebody converts to that, you make them twice as much a son of hell as you are. And no wonder there's sort of this impotency with the church in our culture today because most of the time people think that's what we're inviting them into. And too often as the church we have to own that that's how we've come across. Whether intentionally or not, the reality is sometimes we put something out there that's like, oh, you've got to do this, you've got to do this, we've got to clean this, this up. Rather than inviting people to come and to rest in the gospel, the glorious good news of Jesus a couple of verses later, Jesus would say, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. He's telling the people that were most dialed in, meticulous, and obedient to the law that they're full of lawlessness. How can that be? Because they've missed it, the tendency, the religious impulse. And so the writer here in Ecclesiastes is saying, hey, pay attention. When you come in, guard. Don't give in to this impulse that the narrative of the culture is you do and you perform. What we have here is something so much better. It's countercultural. It's an invitation to actually rest. And so he says, draw near to listen. If we're going to listen well, it means that we actually have to rest. I mean, how many of us struggle with this, right? It's difficult to listen because listening, paying attention, you kind of got to quiet your heart. You got to fight for some space to actually reflect. We're just not good at that as a culture. Part of the reason we bring this into the church and this mindset is because it's what we're used to. It's what we've been discipled in. And we've actually, honestly, we've gotten fairly good at it. 
I can multitask. I can have this going. I can respond to this thing on social media. I can tell my kids that they need this while I'm doing this other task and responding to this email. Or so we think we're doing a, a good job. And we never stop. And we never settle down. One of my, increasingly one of my big pet peeves in life, all right, that here's what I long for. I'm going to sound really old with this, all right? Um, here's what I'm hoping happens in the next couple of years. Can we go back to non-digital gas station pumps, right? Um, now, seriously, some of you are like, what is that thing? It's so archaic. Oh, it's beautiful. It's glorious, right? Because I could get out of the car and I could stand there for just a moment and I could pump the gas and guess what's not happening? There's not sound flying at me. There's not video screens that are on there now trying to sell me a bunch of stuff that I actually don't need. I literally stand there. I just get angry. I'm like, oh, how much longer this? And there's just talking at me constantly, right? You know, you know the feeling? All right, now, if you design that whole thing, I'm sorry. I'm not, like, trying to shoot down your work. But let's be honest. It's hard to get any sort of space, isn't it? I mean, everywhere we go, we could pick on any number of things, Right? Everywhere we go, we're bombarded with noise. You can't even pump gas into your car without constantly being bombarded by more marketing, more advertising, do this, you need this, what about this? It's hard to listen. The Jewish people, one of the things that I think this passage and this call here, I think something that would have come to mind for them is they weren't perfect, certainly, but there were things that the Lord had given to them, these practices and these habits that at certain prescribed times of the day that they would stop and they would intentionally listen. This practice developed through the generations that's referred to as the Shema. And so in the morning prayers and the evening prayers, and they would stop and they would gather. And it comes out of Deuteronomy chapter 6. So think about this. We tend to bring in I got to do this and I've got this and I've got to be active and all of this. And the command here, and this is what they would repeat throughout the day. Hear, O Israel. Notice the first calling. To hear, to listen, to rest, to reflect, to dial in. Not you got to go do this thing or achieve this thing. It's a stopping for a moment, carving out some time and saying, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And by this is meant not just the unity of God as far as Father, Son, and Spirit, though that is true, but what this is particularly speaking to is the exclusivity. Our God is king. Our God reigns amongst a pagan, the pagan nations where they had all their gods and goddesses and all the people that they would, and things that they would offer sacrifices to. And there was this constant narrative of like, you got to keep this one appeased and this one appeased if you want the rain to come or if you want the crops to grow, if you want to be in a relationship, if you want to have a kid, you want like all these things, all these sacrifices. It's not altogether that different from our culture which says you've got to do this and you've got to sacrifice your time and your energy and maybe your family, your friends on the altar of just pursuing success and getting what you think you need in life. And so for the Jewish people, it was this moment to, step, to set aside and say, okay, more than anything, I need to hear that our God reigns, that our God is king, that he is on his throne, that he is magnificent, that he is holy. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And just to rest in that. Think about the impact that that could have in your life and in my life and our life together as a community and bearing witness as a community that we stop regularly throughout the day to remember God is still God. 
that he is king, that he is Lord, that he is sovereign. When you get that email and it suddenly throws off your day, or that person, you saw the call come in and you're like, yeah, I'm gonna send that to voicemail. And then you listen to the voicemail and you're like, oh, now I gotta respond to this thing. Or you know there's a difficult conversation or you know there's stress or there's anxiety or you wonder how you're gonna pay this bill or whatever it happens to be. And just breathe for a moment and remember the Lord our God. And in this, then it's an invitation. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And so yes, there's this response, this call to worship, but it flows out of first and foremost, starting with like who God is. Are we resting in that? Here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Maybe a way to think about it this, for you and I, our ability to actually listen reveals if we're resting in the gospel or not. Can I actually take a moment for sort of just like this mini Sabbath of sorts, just in the moment to to reflect or to pray or to read God's word or to have a spiritual conversation or whatever it happens to be and not believe the lie that like, I, I, I don't have time for that, I gotta get going. What if our life had this rhythm individually and collectively where we were resting in the fact of who God is, that he's got this, that he's sovereign, that he's good? He's made a way for us to be in his presence. We'll talk about that more in a moment. For me, my, when I stop listening, it's because I'm just going. I'm trying to achieve and perform. And oftentimes the sick thing is in the name of ministry or God's work and this kind of thing. And say, whoa, whoa, whoa. Why do we have such a savior complex? Let's let Jesus be the savior that he is. He's really good at his job. I'm terrible at trying to do his job. And let's just rest in what he's done. And allow that, from that place of rest, to fuel then how we actually live and engage in worship. Let's keep going. Look at verses 2 to 3. He tells us, so there's this movement from just kind of casual to seeing worship as consecrated, as holy, this move from doing to actually resting in who God is. And I think there's this movement, too. He begins to address our tendency as we come in and do a holy gathering. There's going to be time for prayer. That's a good thing. But there's this sense, he calls out, like, we can just be very verbose. We can just babble. So there's this movement from babbling, I would say, to broken or to a brokenness. Verses two to three says this, be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. And he says, for remember, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. So apparently that understanding should make us shut up just a little bit more than we tend to. God, you're in heaven, you're good, you're glorious. Not that he doesn't want to hear from us, but rather There's this religious impulse, I think, that takes over where we're like, I I gotta get this out, as if God doesn't know. Therefore, let your words be few, for a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. All right, so when there's a lot going on in your life, you tend to have dreams about it, he's saying, and a fool's voice, all right? Like, the way, you know that's foolish, there's just many words. Jesus would address this, he would speak of this in Matthew 6 as he gets ready to lay out for us what has come to be known as the Lord's Prayer. And the disciples said, hey, teach us to pray. And one of the things he does is he describes this. He's like, hey, here's, here's, don't give into this. When you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. That doesn't mean don't use any words. But I think there's, again, there's this religious impulse that says, okay, if I say the right words or repeat it enough or have enough angst or emotion or something with it that somehow you're gonna like alter the universe and God somehow now can be manipulated and like he's gonna pay attention to you. Jesus was very 
like he, he laid it out very simplistically for us. It was just like, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Let's start there. What is it doing again? It's like the Shema. It's a recognition that God is God. And yes, you can ask him for things. For sure, he loves to hear from you. And there are times where you will pour out your heart with a lot of words. But also know this, there's an invitation to pray when you're just like, I don't even know what to say. I don't know what to do. I can't make sense of any of this. And you're in that place of brokenness. And in that spot, we're actually in a really good place, as painful as it is. I appreciated this quote. Listen to this kind of describing this. This is uh, David Gibson in his book on the book of Ecclesiastes called Living Life Backward. He says, don't be too quick just to tell God what you think he wants to hear. Someone has said that when we pray, we tend to think it's like talking into a spiritual microphone with God listening on the other end through a set of heavenly earphones. But in fact, when we pray, God is listening to us with a spiritual stethoscope. Just like the doctor who says, let me hear you breathe, and he listens in to what we cannot see and so learns the truth about us. God is in heaven. Can't you see as you look around how small you are and how big God is? So don't you think his stethoscope is always working? Don't shoot off your mouth or speak before you think. Ecclesiastes is teaching us that we need God's word. We need his revelation about who he is and what he's like in order to reverence him properly. That God can hear, that God knows that he's dialed in. Maybe a way to think about it is, is this, that when we engage in this sort of babbling, what Jesus spoke against in Matthew 6, I think it means we've lost sight of the majesty of God. It's not to be scared of him, but it is to have this holy reverence and this right recognition. Okay, God, you are on the throne. You are king. And we're not, we can't manipulate him through our words. Makes me think of this, maybe you are familiar with this account. It's the commissioning of the servant, the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 6, the words will be up here on the screen. In the year that King Uzziah died, it says, I saw the Lord. This is Isaiah, like this is his recollection of it, this vision that he gets. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. And with two he covered his face. And with two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. As we look around. It's amazing sometimes to step back and to see the things that we've, as humanity, have made and created. And we can uh, be, wow, that, that's amazing. Um, but then we look out over what God has actually created. And we look at the scale of that. It puts us in our place. Like even our greatest contributions pale in comparison to what God has made. The whole earth is full of his glory. And it says, and the foundations of the threshold shook at his voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said... Notice what Isaiah's response is. And I decided to speak a lot of words or say a lot of things or tell God, whoa, 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 dial it down, buddy. I've got some things that I want to say to you. No, no, what does he say? Woe is me, I am lost, I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. He's wrecked, he's completely undone. Why, because he's gotten a vision of the grandeur of God. To rightly worship the teacher is telling us, hey, we need to remember who God is, to have this picture of him. And part of what we do when we gather is it helps us experience that. We lose sight of the majesty and the wonder of God when we get out of the rhythm of gathering with God's people. 
there's this call here to, to, for us to wrestle through this question. Do you and I rightly understand our position? Like we too are like Isaiah. Like woe is me. Okay, God, you are holy and you're majestic. I can't be in your presence. Perhaps we can think about it th this way that babbling is simply another manifestation of religion. It's this attempt to like if I use the right words, the right language, that I'm trying to save myself. And yet the calling of the scriptures and what we see here, it's why we move from this sort of babbling to broken or to brokenness. It says, Jesus says in Matthew 5, verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit for they shall, like theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You get the kingdom. You get to be in relationship with God. You get to be in his presence. Not when you think you're awesome or you've said the right words or you've put things together or you're a well put together person, but when you understand, like Isaiah, woe is me. I am poor in spirit. I'm not middle class in spirit, not walking around. Like, well, yeah, I know there's people that are better than me and some that are worse than me. I'm kind of middle of the road. Like, no, you're just like, I don't know about anybody else, but I am dead. I am done for. I'm unraveled. I don't deserve to be in his presence, can't do it at all, got nothing to bring, I'm poor, I'm impoverished, I am in complete desperation. And in that spot, worship is starting to happen. And part of the gathering that we have is an opportunity to reflect on that, not to leave us in that place. Maybe you've noticed even as a church, like there are things that we're doing now that are different than what we were doing even a couple of years ago, all right? Trying to give some space for us to reflect, trying to have some times of prayer, having corporate confession and assurance of pardon, all of the, those things. It's not just like, oh, let's rant, you know, add some random things because you know, we just need to mix it up a bit, but rather these things are formative and they shape us and I need to be reminded when I gather that I don't even deserve to be in God's presence. And when we get this call to worship, it right away should like result in like, oh, I got some sin to c confess because I've gotten a glimpse of who God is. Let's keep going. We've got a few minutes left. I think, look at verses four to six. It talks about vows, all right? And the Lord is, what he's communicating, I think, here is that when we gather, we need to trust. We should come with expectant hearts that God is actually going to speak in and through his word as the spirit works, communicating things, and it's going to create in us this, I think this good godly desire to like, oh, how do I respond? And there'll probably be things that come to mind that aren't because I made some application point, you need to go and do this, but rather the spirit is speaking to you specifically as you sit where you are and as you listen, as you process and your story and your life circumstances, that there tends to be some things that are like, oh, is that what the Lord is saying? And the tendency of the human heart it's to feel sort of like, okay, yep, I heard that, that's good. And you sort of think, okay, I'm gonna go and I'm gonna do this, and maybe you've been in prayer, you say that you're gonna do it, and then we get to the parking lot, by the time we get in our car and turn the AC on and try and get on our way home or to lunch, it's just gone. It's like, it's not a call to religion, it's a call now to respond in light of who God is, to move from just sort of intentions or just cheap sort of vows that we might make to actually follow through to action. Verses four to six say it this way. For when you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? Now, we don't have the equivalent of the messenger 
there in the temple setup, oftentimes there would be somebody that would be paying attention to like, okay, this person now in this service, they made this vow, they're gonna, they're gonna do this, they're gonna give this amount, that sort of thing, and then the messenger would come check in. And then the tendency of the human heart is like, I'm gonna shoot that messenger, basically. And like, no, 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 it was a mistake, or we try and like talk our way out of it. So we don't have anybody here that, that's sort of spying on you in that sense, but ask yourself this question. What things have you been prompted by? You've heard the Spirit speaking to you and you know, like, I gotta step in it. It's gonna be hard, it's gonna be difficult, all right? Maybe you're not really looking forward to it, but you're like, I know, and maybe you've even offered this before to God, like, God, I promise to, to, to do this, and then you just haven't. And this gets into this line here where it's like, hey, I thought we were pushing against that religious impulse. Now you're telling me I gotta go and do and do and do and just remember this. This is a huge fundamental truth we gotta always come back to. The dominant storyline, the way religion operates, is to say, all right, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. If you boil it down, that summarizes the religious impulse of the heart. I'm going to obey, I'm going to do this, and then God owes me. God has to accept me. Now, there's a massive problem with that is because I can't perfectly obey, and neither can you. And so it's just right out of the gate, it's done for. But that's, it's still, for some reason, we buy into that narrative. The gospel is I am accepted not on my own merit, but through the finished work of Jesus, his life, death, resurrection, trusting in him, surrendering to him. So I'm accepted, and therefore now I obey. And so even this idea of vows and follow through and all of that, like it's not that God wants you just to sit back and do nothing, that part of what happens even in a, in a gathering is there's gonna be things that the Lord is gonna speak to you, but it's in light of who you are in him that you're like, okay, now I'm gonna walk in obedience. And so let me just ask you to be thinking through this. What has God been calling you to do? Maybe there's that person that you need to reach out to. You know the relationship is strained. You've been trying to ignore it. And it's like, all right, I maybe need to pick up the phone. All right, I need to actually maybe go. Maybe if you're close enough, I got to go over to their house. I got to talk to them. All right, if you're like, I'll solve it via email. Please don't do that. All right. Um, whatever it happens to, to look like, what do you need to reconcile? Maybe there's that person that you're just like, hey, the Lord's been prompting me. Like, I just need to reach out to care for that person. Maybe invite that, that neighbor over, getting to know somebody. Maybe there's ways that the Lord has been prompting you of like, hey, I want to get involved in the life of the church. I've been sitting on the sidelines too much, and I've been sensing him telling me like, okay, get involved. And you're like, oh, I'll do that next week, or I'll I'll talk to somebody at some point, and then weeks go by and months go by. The Lord speaks. The Lord is calling us to respond to his goodness and his grace, to live lives of a glad submission to him, to actually worship him through our life, what is God calling you to do? So part of this rightly kind of oriented worship is to move then from simply just good intentions and saying a lot of good things to actually like, no, let's step into it, but not to earn anything. And this is where the writer concludes for us. Look with me at verse seven. I think there's this movement there ultimately that's saying whatever we do, realize that there are the fleeting, temporal, vanity, meaningless sorts of things that you can give your life to. You can get really busy doing that, or you can dial into what is eternal. And when we gather here, that part of what this gathering is doing is reminding us again and again, because I don't know about you, but I'm a very forgetful person when it comes to ultimately what matters. Like this message being preached is not because, well, I'm gonna be up on the stage because you people need to hear this. The reality is this is the message that I need to hear all the time. 
I'm constantly trying to measure myself against like how I perform, what I do, thinking, you know, like, and so my kind of, the, the week can kind of ebb and flow depending on how well I think I'm doing according to particular standards. It's, you know, when God gives us things to do, then we also come up with our own kind of set of rules and things that we're like, okay, this is the narrative I need to live by. I need to, to do this. And the writer's reminding us, the teacher's reminding us, those things, like they're fleeting, but what's eternal? So look with me at verse 7. I put up here on the screen, this is how the NIV translates it, which I like the language here just a little bit better. It says, much dreaming and many words are meaningless. Therefore, what does it say? What's the ultimate call? Stand in awe of God. So let's conclude with this way. As you and I think about this, all right? Much dreaming and many words are meaningless. Well, it doesn't mean you don't dream, you, know, you don't have any sort of vision for your life, all right? Like, there are good things to pursue, all right? But it is calling us to think to this, like, what are, what are the dreams that you have for, for your life? And what if you got every last thing that you wanted, and yet you did not have the relationship with Jesus, you didn't get to enjoy God's presence, what you got as your dream would actually turn into your nightmare. It would it would turn upon you, like it would, it would end up sort of enslaving you. It would not bring the freedom that you desire. It would not bring life. It would not bring a lightness. It would bring more oppression and a heaviness. And then you would continually, and I would be in this sort of narrative that we can't seem to get out of, that I've got to just do more. And so what's your dream for life? Is it just the things of the, this world? Well, it tells us that it's vanity, that it's, it's meaningless, that it's going to go away, that it's fleeting. When words grow many, there is vanity. So therefore, stand in awe of God is the call. Look at this, this quote I'll read to you. This out of a book called Seculosity by a guy named David Zoll. And he says it this way, that there is this pervasive mindset, again, that's why we gotta keep coming back to and why it's so important to be gathered together because the narrative is, I gotta do more, I've gotta produce. Wondering, are we enough? He says, listen carefully and you'll hear that word enough everywhere, especially when it comes to the anxiety, the loneliness, the exhaustion and division that plague our moment to such tragic proportions. You'll hear about people scrambling to be successful enough, happy enough, thin enough, wealthy enough, influential enough, desired enough, charitable enough, woke enough, good enough. We believe instinctively that were we to reach some benchmark in our minds, then value, vindication, and love would be ours. That if we got enough, we would be enough. That is the narrative. That's what you and I are bombarded with. And we can pursue those things and we can think, I've gotten it, I've arrived, I'm enough. And yet, if Christ is not at the center, if you're not standing in awe of God, these things will ultimately crumble. They will ultimately enslave you. They will not bring freedom. They will not bring joy. What does it look like to worship God with the things you have? Sure, you can pursue things, all right? Doesn't mean don't have any sort of ambition, but at the end of the day, can we just rest in the fact that God is on his throne, that he is to be worshiped, that my joy comes from engaging in worship with him, that part of what we do here, it's not the only time that we worship, but there's something powerful that happens as we gather as the body, that God is speaking to us through his word, through his, his spirit, reminding us of who we are in him. And so let me close with two passages of scripture. I just want us just soak in this for a moment before we go to prayer. The gospel. 
Stand in awe of God. The way, the reason that you and I can stand in awe of God is because there was one that stood in our place. That Jesus lived a sinless life. He came into this world. He entered into the mess. And he died the death that you deserve and that I deserve. That he conquered Satan's sin and death by rising again three days later. Like he stood in our place and now we can stand in awe of him. When Paul's writing to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 1, just look at these glorious words. He's trying to get us to get to the spot of like, wow, let's worship him for what he's done. In love, it says this, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons. God in his love has moved toward you. The language here is one that God is the active agent, that he's pursuing you. Even if you don't know if you believe any of this stuff, like even now, the fact that you're here is part of God's pursuit of you. He predestined us for adoption, meaning you're brought into the family. When he uses that language as sons, that is for the men and the women, because it, it's, being, it's using that language because the sons got the actual inheritance. They're saying that's for all of us. We've been adopted into the family through Jesus Christ, according to the purposes of his will, and you see this to the praise of his glorious grace. It's meant to result in worship. And so when we gather here, it's this opportunity to have our hearts reoriented to what ultimately matters. That we give him praise for his grace. That we didn't earn anything with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, that's in Christ, we have redemption through his blood. That we've been purchased, that we've been set free, that we've been ransomed, that we're no longer a slave the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. Not just like, okay, begrudgingly, here's a little bit of grace. Don't ask me for any more. He's just like, you need more? Here, lavish. All right, I got more where that came from. And he just keeps pouring out his grace in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, which doesn't mean we're gonna know everything, but we do know where the story is heading. According to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, you know what that plan is? To unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. This is the story that you're part of. This gathering helps remind us. It reminds our hearts and our minds so we might worship with the totality of who we are, that God's going to unite all things. Your dream for your life, my dream for my life, is way too small. God's vision for the world, he's going to unite everything. He's going to restore everything. He's going to allow us to be in his presence forever. And so the call then is to step into that space, not just someday when we die, but right here and right now. And this is why Paul would say in Romans 12, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. So think about the mercy and the grace and the lavishness and that you're part of his family to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And so it flows out from here. In response to God, we live a life of worship. So I want to invite us, we're going to pray now. I'll come back up in a moment and explain how we're going to continue in our service. But just take some time right now. What is it that maybe the Lord has been speaking to you that you need to take some time in reflection to quiet your heart, to confess to the Lord? Take a moment in your heart to, to celebrate the reality of the glorious good news of the gospel that you're part of this family. And the continue idea is this. Like make plans, be intentional about continuing to worship. Not just when you gather on Sunday, but throughout the day, but then building these rhythms in so that we might be the worshipers that God has called us to be because it's in that place that God, is, God gets glory and we actually experience joy. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this great text, for this 
incredible book of Ecclesiastes that you've given to us, that it might challenge us, but also that it, it encourages us as we wrestle through these very same things. And even in this text, God, as we wonder, what's the point of this and what do you want to see happen as, a, as your people gather? I pray that you would create um, this movement within us, God, that we would be people that more readily worship you, that we give praise to you, that we remember, God, that you are sovereign, that you are good, and that you are in control. And that we would live in a glad obedience and submission to you in response to what you've done for us. That we would not believe the lie of the enemy that we've got to perform, that we've got to achieve. But would your spirit remind us that at the end of the day, we are receivers of your grace. So even now, Holy Spirit, encourage us, speak the truth of the gospel into our hearts, into those deep and those dark places where we haven't, we've been resistant to allow your spirit to go. I pray that we would open ourselves up to what you would have for us and that you would remind us, that you would encourage us for your glory and for our joy. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.